This week, the U.S. hit its credit limit, with lawmakers still divided over the nation's spending. And President Biden has been waving off hand-wringing over misplaced classified documents. That brings us to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post, with a welcome to you both. So just yesterday, the U.S. hit its debt ceiling. The Treasury Department says it's going to take extraordinary measures to keep the U.S. government paying its bills. David, this could be the riskiest showdown yet, given that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy offered those guarantees to those Republican hardliners in exchange for their votes to make him House Speaker that there would be no raising of the debt ceiling without significant spending cuts. Yeah, no, it makes me nostalgic for the debt ceiling crisis of 2011. (laughs) It seemed sort of more or less like normal people were in control. Uh, And and now you've got people off on Planet Debbie um, who have the the speaker in their hands. Uh, And so I do think it is a pretty serious crisis. Uh, And so how do the Democrats react? Well, there are some people who say they should take unilateral action. There are some very unusual ways that Democrats could act alone. The 14th Amendment says the government has to pay off its debt, and they could say invoke the 14th Amendment and hope the Supreme Court backs you up. My favorite one, print a trillion-dollar platinum coin. Apparently, <laughs> somehow that's legal. Um, but I think the most likely is to um, go to the Senate, try to build a bipartisan coalition, 60 votes, with a plan, and then throw it on the House and hope you can take some of the, maybe the 18 House Republicans who were in Biden districts, districts Biden won, hopefully public opinion by that point will be so much against doing, going off the cliff that some of them will break and then they could work with the Democrats and get it passed. But that's a very tough road to hoe, actually. Jonathan, what do you make of that strategy? The White House says they're not budging. I spoke to one White House official who said the debt limit was raised without strings attached a number of times in recent years when when President Trump was in the White House and Republicans controlled Congress. Right. And I think the White House is absolutely right to say emphatically and repeatedly, we are not negotiating over the debt ceiling. And people, every time we have this conversation, I am going to remind people that the, that, um, the debt ceiling is not about new spending. It is about spending that has already happened. We've bought the car. We bought the ring. We took the vacation. We ate and have digested the meal. We put it on a credit card. We have to pay the bill. And so the conversation about raising the debt limit and the conversation about spending cuts and getting our fiscal house in order, which always seems to come up when a Democrat's in the White House, is always forgotten when a Republican is in the White House, those should be two separate conversations. Um, once they raise the, raise the debt ceiling, then I think, um, you know, yeah, everybody, get together and let's have a serious conversation about how to get the nation's spending uh, under control. But they, let's say they zero out the budget, cut everything next year. The bills for the car and the ring and the meal will still be showing up. And so that's why the two must be separate. And David, to your point about um, hearkening back to the halcyon days of 2011, I mean, what makes this moment different is that it can't be assumed that every Republican isn't trying to avoid a fiscal Armageddon. I mean, how, how do you see this resolving within the conference, the Republican Yeah, that's conference? right. Well, I think two things. I think if the Democrats are right for right now to say we need a clean bill, we're not going to. I think they should have in their back pocket a plan to, in case craziness happens, that offers the Republicans something so they can get 60 votes. The problem with the Republicans and especially the more hardcore ones, is that they're doing what they always do. They're going into a battle for no plan on how to get out of it. <laughs> and I don't think they even know what they're asking for in exchange. Uh, and so there's all sorts of dissension over that. 
And there are some, there's just this nihilistic wing who think that stopping the system is what they're here to do. And stopping the system is not exactly governance. And you just gotta deal with the fact that they've got leverage right now. Mm. And so that's why I think the Democrats should have a back pocket plan. Is there a political benefit here for Democrats as you see it? I mean, it, it sort of pains me to discuss this um, through a political lens, but welcome to Washington. Yeah, there is a political benefit because the Republicans will look even crazier as we go down this road. They um, are more unreasonable by the day. And then we start watching the markets react to the craziness. In 2011, we watched the nation's credit rating get downgraded by one of the rating agencies for the first time in our history. They're, the markets are used to this, and they might start reacting long before potentially June and start issuing warnings. If you don't take action, here's what we're going to do. And the cost to the American people might not be seen immediately, but it will be felt down the road. Well, as we mentioned earlier in the program, anti-abortion advocates from across the country gathered in Washington today for the annual March for Life, the first time since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. David, opponents, abortion opponents, have really met their primary goal of, of gutting Roe. And right now, at least half of all states have banned or restricted access to abortion in most cases. Where does the movement go from here? Well, so far it gets decentralized. And so they used to have these big national organizations. They'd do this march. They'd end up at the Supreme Court, and they had a clear focus, which was to end Roe. But now it's state by state. And what you're seeing is a lot of the national organizations are being sidelined by state organizations organizations and the action is in the state legislatures and there's wide difference in what the activities should be a lot of the catholic groups for example are they want to put the emphasis on the the pregnancy crisis centers to help women through this process and support them in the way they need to be support them others just want to you know work on the law and get to a zero basically a zero abortion set of laws on the state level what i'm curious about is how this evolves because public opinion is shifting and you see national Republicans walking away from hardcore pro-life positions because it's so unpopular. And the big question for me is, right now it looks like you have some states where it'll be a complete abortion freedom and some states with none. And will, uh, will popular opinion ever evolve to the point where it's 20 weeks or 15 weeks or whatever the, some midpoint will be? That's where a lot of the country is, but it's not where the state laws are. And Jonathan, as it moves state by state, it is still a, a key issue in state legislative elections. There was just a special election in Virginia uh, that in many ways was a proxy vote about abortion access and a Democrat won that race. Yeah, uh, we were having this discussion before the midterm elections about what kind of impact would the, would the Dobbs decision have on the election. Now we know, and now uh, thanks to Justice Clarence Thomas and his um, concurring opinion, he made it clear that we're not, it wasn't just Roe v. Wade, we should also look at Griswold, which had to do with, with contraception. And I think while the, the, the movement may decentralize to the states, you know, we still have Senator Lindsey Graham, who in the last Congress introduced a national abortion ban. That's something that I think will be um, uh, of great interest to the movement. But also, you know, who's to say that contraception? Uh, someone might not introduce a, a, a national contraception ban. I mean, we're, t we're in crazy times, and we have to keep our imagination open. But just because the movement has won on Roe v. Wade doesn't mean that the movement will stop at the national level, I don't think. 
Well, this time last week we were talking about uh, President Biden's handling of those classified documents and how the White House was handling that whole issue. Well, just yesterday the president spoke on the record about it. And as he fielded the question, he first chided reporters, suggesting that there were more important things to talk about. And then he said this. We found a handful of documents were failed, uh, were filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives of the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating and looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. So the substance of the case is what it is, but on the messaging, it appears that the White House has settled on something of a mitigation strategy. He's out here talking about it. Yeah, I mean, he's going to have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think he's, it's with the proviso that it's not like Trump, I'm not going to make this, any comparisons. I think it, it, the story's a little worse for the White House this week than it was last week. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, we've learned, thanks to reporting in my newspaper, that they were, they were hoping to um, deep six it so it would never come out. Mm. And so they, were, they, they didn't report it for all those times because they thought they could make the Justice Department happy and it would never see light of day. That just doesn't happen often in Washington. Um, and so I, I think the effort to try to deep six it was not the right, right thing to do and I think it's backfiring on them. And then we've learned that the story of, of revealing everything has been mostly right, but there have been hiccups. They said we completed our search, then they find new documents later, so it gets a little messier. I still think it's a medium to medium small size issue, but I, I think the administration as a general rule um, has a tendency to hoard information. Uh, and this is maybe a warning shot that they should rethink some of that, those habits. Yeah. And what's your take? And thanks to the great reporting in my newspaper on the front page <laughs> yesterday, I mean, I disagreed that the, the White House was trying to deep six. According to our, our reporting yesterday, it was they were taking the lead and giving deference to the Justice Department, which was already investigating. What we have here, I think, is a, a political PR response versus the legal response. And we've seen in all sorts of instances where those two interests are completely different and they are in conflict and we're seeing it in high relief in this case. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, it's always a pleasure to speak with you both. Great to see you.